Lord, this morning we want to humble ourselves before your word. We want to allow you to be seen. And so, Lord, reveal yourself through your word to our hearts. Lord, we also want to be shaped and molded by your word and what is revealed. And we ask, Lord, that our hearts would um, be humble before you, would be tender, would be teachable. And I ask, Lord, as your messenger today, that you would simply speak through these lips and accomplish your purposes as we seek to understand, um, to apply, and to proclaim your word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your precious name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There are many stories from the Bible that have become well-known in our culture. We could probably rattle off a number of them. Um, it could be the story of Noah's Ark, of course, the story of Jesus and his birth, um, probably to some degree uh, the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection. Um, but one of the stories that uh, I think many people know about is the story that comes from 1 Samuel 17 where David comes up against a giant by the name of Goliath. In the secular world, it is common to hear a statement like, you will face some Goliaths in your life. And even more so in the world of sports, and especially during March Madness, um, when minnow colleges are facing up against these, these you know, Division I huge teams, and there might be a minnow college that beats one of those teams, and they say, David defeated Goliath today. So it's just part of the, the fabric of our culture's ideas. This idea of facing your giants has become part of, uh, of our thinking. It's become a motto for the underdog who, who, who faces insurmountable odds. It's become a metaphor for, for overcoming huge obstacles or, or gaining victory over life experiences that you're facing. Don't allow this Goliath to defeat you. But as we come to this text, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 through 22, we might leave a little perplexed. And part of that's because we now come face to face with four more giants that God's people, in particular David and his mighty men, had to face. Well, who are they? And why does the author include them in this final reflection of the books of First and Second Samuel, and what is he seeking to teach us? So those are some questions that we want to consider this morning. But remember that chapters 21 through 24 are an appendix to the end of this, these two books, at one time one book. And what we have here in these last few chapters are six vignettes. Last week we looked at the first one, but notice this is a chiasm, which simply means that we, we begin with, with two stories on either side, and like a sandwich, we're working our way to the middle. So what we really ultimately want to feast on is the meat at the middle, right? Um, you don't say, oh, that sandwich was great. Give me more of that lettuce, right? You're, you're usually talking about the meat that's in it, and that's where we want to go. We're not quite getting there, but what we have before us today um, is another vignette to give us another final stamp that says to the reader, see how different David, God's chosen king, is. He's unlike Saul. 
He's unlike any other king. He's not the people's king. He is the one after my own heart. And remember, I repeat this, but that that is not saying that, that David somehow had a heart for God and that's why God chose him. It means that this is the one that reflects the heart of God. It's God that chose David to be his king. And last week, we noted that David was a covenant keeper, unlike Saul, the covenant breaker. And the result of, of, of the covenant breaking of Saul was the need for the atonement. And David is, is willing to bring atonement to pay for the, the, the requirements of that broken covenant. And today, as we look at 2 Samuel 21 and verses 15 and following, we will see that David is a valiant warrior who is loved and supported by his mighty men. So a covenant keeper, but now a valiant warrior. And what is clear from this text is that David faced many more giants than Goliath. Just let that settle in a little bit. Because the writer of the book is only giving you some of the stories of David. And he chose to give you the story of David and Goliath, but now as he's reflecting back, there are many more giants in the land that he and his men had to encounter and had to defeat. Now unfortunately, when pastors or people come to a passage like this, there's a tendency to quickly move to application and to spiritualize what is being said here and come to the conclusion that what's being talked about here is the fact that we're gonna be facing our giants and, and we need to learn how to defeat our giants. Now let me just please tell you this, In the story of David and Goliath, and I think it would spill over here, you are not David. You are not the champion of the people of Israel. You are one of the people in the armies that will not respond to the taunting of Goliath. It is David who is a picture of Christ that stands against Goliath and the enemy, the devil himself. And so what we do is we turn to Christ. We look at David, who is a foreshadowing of Christ. But sadly, we have a tendency, typically, pastors have a tendency to move to application so fast that we miss seeing the beauty of what is going on in the text that is pointing us to who Christ is and what he has done. So for example, one well-known pastor has a book titled Facing Your Giants. And in it, he takes his time to walk through a variety of giants that you will face and how to face them like David faced Goliath. Listen to what he says. Your Goliath doesn't carry a sword or shield. He brandishes blades of unemployment, abandonment, sexual abuse, depression. Your giant doesn't parade up and down the hills of Elah. He, He prances through your office your bedroom, your classroom. He brings bills you can't pay, grades you can't make, um, you can't make, people you can't please, whiskey you can't resist, pornography you can't refuse, a career you can't escape, a past you can't shake, and a failure you can't face. Another one uh, who's a well-known pastor in his book, Slaying the Giants in Your Life, seeks to help Christians face their own Goliaths such as fear, and discouragement, and worry, and guilt, and temptation, and doubt. Don't get me wrong, these are all important issues that Christians face and have to deal with. 
but they are not the point of this text. And not, they're not the point of that text where David meets Goliath. What we've looked at here in these statements and are, are, are causes of, of heartache. They're, they're truly consuming issues that are life-changing and life-rearranging. They're, they're real issues. They're struggles that every believer should seek to apply the, the power of the gospel to and the wisdom of the word to. But like I said, they're not the point of this text. The writer of First and Second Samuel didn't record this information so that you, his readers, could look at your world and think to yourself, this is how I can face the giant of unemployment, depression, sexual abuse, abandonment, and so on and so forth. And that's not what the original readers were seeking to do. That's not what he was wanting them to do. He was wanting them to see someone greater to look at, to be in awe of. Now, although the struggles of life that I've just mentioned are real and imposing, they can draw us away from the beauty of this text. They are only implications at best that might be drawn out of this text. So this morning, I would like to present uh, this, this proposition, this theme, this, this focus of our time together. Divine comfort and hope for God's children in the face of the enemy. God's children face a real enemy, but they embrace a mightier God. A right or a divine perspective gives great comfort and hope to believers when the enemy rears his ugly head. So this morning, let us begin by considering the giants that David faced. The giants that David faced. First of all, I want you to notice that the giants that are listed here are daunting in their appearance. I mean, they're giants. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever come up against a giant. I remember when we were in Michigan and we got some tickets to go to a Detroit Pistons game. And um, we were all Pistons fans back then. Um, and uh, we were able to go, and we were able to go early and we were able to get our picture with one particular player and it was Darvin Ham. probably you wouldn't know who he is. But um, as we were kind of waiting around the court, um, a guy by the name of Rick Mahorn came by. Rick Mahorn, I think he would have to duck his head to get in here. I mean, this guy was huge. He was enormous. And my son was there, and he just picked up my son, just like he was just a a cat or something like that. Just, you know, huge. Now, these guys were giants, enormous. They were intimidating, daunting in their appearance and their stature, even with the weapons that they had. So they're called giants for a reason. Their very presence would instill fear in you. Their superior strength in battle would leave you despondent, and it would take hard and brutal work and skill and firm determination to defeat them under such insurmountable odds. 
And friends, there's a sense in which we, we could even say that the, the battle, the enemy that we face today, comes at us in a variety of different ways. It is the same today. The enemies of God rise up, and they are daunting in their appearance. I mean, all you have to do is turn your TV on for a little bit or go through your, your Facebook news, and you see videos of things like ISIS, and just the daunting presence and the evil that they're doing puts a little bit of fear in you on a human level. And there seems to be this, this dark cloud of, of Islam moving across the world. And it's, there's a sense in which it brings terror to people. It's intimidating. And then, of course, there's the media. Well, you say something that is anywhere near Christian in the context of media, man, you are shot down fast. You're considered a simpleton, an ignoramus, and the media just wants to laugh at you. Then, of course, there's just rank liberalism, and I don't mean that as a, as a political term. I just mean that as an ideology. It just says, we don't need religion. All we need is our secular human thinking. We are sophisticated. We are mature people and people who need religion. They're weaklings. You may have heard this week that there were some pastors arrested in England. That happened back in June. They were street preachers. A crowd gathered. This is in Bristol. And they simply read God's word. And when asked questions, they read God's word. The crowd got upset. Police were called. And they were arrested. And the judge who was presiding over that said that they had committed disorderly conduct using threatening and abusive words likely to cause alarm. Simply reading scripture, which by the way, is the foundation of the British political structure, ideological system. The very thing that is their foundation, they are now saying, is abusive. Now, it'd be one thing if they were actually being abusive, but the video shows that they weren't. They were just reading it. They were trying to be gentle, loving, but being truthful, considered now abuse. It's daunting, friends. Not only that, these giants are varied in their methodology. They're varied in their methodology. And I, I simply want to draw attention to the fact that, yes, they were different giants, Different guys have different ways of doing things. Secondly, there's different weapons that are mentioned in here that are used by the giants. There's different skills then that would be involved by using those different weapons. They honed, I'm sure, those weapons for their task. Notice Ishbabinab had a spear that weighed 300 shekels um, as well. I, I, interesting to me, it says 300 shekels of bronze. Now, why would that be any weightier than 300 shekels of gold? Now, what's heavier, a ton of feathers or a ton of bricks, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> it, it says of bronze. But the point here is this, is to show you this thing was enormous, as well as the fact that he had a, it says a new sword. The actually word sword is, is hard to translate it. The idea is a new weapon. So he had this new kind of weapon that even the writer really couldn't describe. An unusual weapon. Goliath, who is listed later, whose shaft of his spear was like the, the weaver's beam. And these were 
not only intimidating, but they were varied. How do you fight against that? Now, as we bring that into our own context, what are some methods that the enemy uses today? Well, we've just considered intimidation. There's that whole idea of elitism and sophistication. You know, you, you turn on the TV in a talk show and someone like Bill Maher comes on and it's just kind of like this, well, you know, Christians are just a bunch of idiots. It's just kind of, a, you know, just, just kind of write them off. They don't even know how to think. I can't believe they're actually believing such things in the 21st century. Can you believe that they would even say that? Or science. I was born that way. Science shows this to be true, even when Scripture says otherwise. There's this new morality, right, that we, that we face today that, that we're tolerant of everything except for that that we are intolerant of. And because of this new morality, it's okay to be intolerant of that thing. And, of course, we bear the brunt of that. And then, of course, there's hate speech. Again, these are all different tools that, it, that these giants are using and, and that we face in today's context. And these are all coming from the enemy. There's this mocking tone. Did you notice that? The last one, they taunted them. You, you are fools. You're simple people, weak and, and needing a crutch. This is how we would have to wrestle with this. You're blind. You're needy. You're, 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 you're arrogant to think that you have the only way. Again, as I've read and I've listened to different atheists or people talk, that the things that they say are always said with kind of a, a, a smirky sneer, you know, how can you be so stupid even to entertain a question like that? How could you be so gullible to believe what you believe, this Bible? Why is it when, when I ask you a question, you, you always say, well, the word of God says. Obviously, you can't think for yourself. You have to stand on this thing called the Bible. But notice what else happens in this passage. Not only is it mocking in its tone, varied in its methodology, the enemy is daunting in appearance, but... The enemy is relentless in his pursuit. Did you get this? There was war again. There was again war. There was again war. There was again war. And you may remember as we went through 1 Samuel, one of the things that came up was that the Philistines are like that cat that you take miles and miles away and shows up three days later. The Philistines are defeated, but they always, always, always come back. Again and again and again. And the same is true with us. The battle rages on and the enemy is relentless. And just when you've gained a victory, he's coming at you again from a different angle in a different way. But friends, that's, that's the life of a believer. We are afflicted on every side, Paul says. We're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down. The enemy is real, he's daunting, he's, he's vacillating, he's taunting, he's relentless, but we are not without comfort and hope in this world. So it's helpful to notice the giant that David faced, but we must press on through this picture of the enemy of God and, and, and to notice the God that David embraced. And friends, this is so critically important for us. The focus of attention is not so much on the enemy, although he's real and he comes in many ways, 
But there's a God who is mightier, who is greater than any of these enemies. A.W. Tozer famously and helpfully says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So consider for a moment your answers to these questions. What is God like? How does he behave? Is he strong? Is he powerful? Can he be trusted? Does he change his mind? Does he even care? We could continue going down the list of questions. But your answer to those questions will help you understand whether or not you have a right view of God, a biblically informed view of God. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. So if you think that God is love and never exercises any wrath, you will have an opinion of God that really doesn't reflect biblical truth. If you think that God is a vacillating God who one day decides, well, I'm gonna arbitrarily do this and today I'm gonna do this, then you have a view of God that will not give you hope, that is not revealed in the word of God. And so it's important now for us to see this God that David embraced and, and just notice some things as we tease them out of this particular section of scripture. Number one, he is a God who protects his leaders. He protects his leaders. Now notice in this passage, verse 15, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And what happens next? And David grew weary. Now remember, as we see David in his strong moments is a beautiful foreshadowing and picture of Christ, and yet he is a sinful, frail human being. But here's David in the battle, and he's growing weary. And what happens? And Ishbabinab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So God provided David with mighty men to protect and preserve their leader, eventually their king. Abishai steps in and takes control of the giant and as a result, David's mighty men determined to protect their king, swore an oath to David saying, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. The lamp of Israel is in the hand of the creator of the universe. The hope of Israel is in the hand of the creator of the universe. God knows what he is doing with his servants. And when it's time to protect them, when it's time to preserve their lives, he is a God that does that. Now, we don't necessarily see that on this side of the events, but we see it having looked back at what's been happening. And just think with me on a couple of characters in Scripture. God protected Noah and brought his family safely through a flood. 
He guided Jacob to not sacrifice Isaac. He presided over little baby Moses, hidden in the reeds, but found by the daughter of Pharaoh. Think that was all just circumstantial? You think that just happened, and you know, Pharaoh's floating around, and God was like, oh, look, Pharaoh's daughter picked him up. Well, what do you know? No, God is at work in his providential plan, fully in control, protecting and preserving his leaders. Think of Joseph. I mean, if you were Joseph, you probably would have thought to yourself, God has abandoned me. At every step, it just seems like I'm trying to do what is right, and it just gets worse, and it gets worse. That's times of of good, but then out 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 of nowhere, this horrible thing happens. And yet God was, even through the trial and difficulty, was preserving his leader, his servant, for his purposes. He wasn't allowing anything to happen to him that was not necessary for his will to be accomplished. Even the suffering he went through. And so now, even, even Ishbabinab seeking to run David threw with his heavy spear and his new weapon is just simply a giant in the hand of Almighty God, hindered providentially by a mighty warrior by the name of Abishai. When God is at work through his children, he guides and protects them according to his will. That doesn't mean that God's children are immune to trouble immune to trials or death, but that those things are in the hand of God. And until he calls us home, he will accomplish his purposes and he will protect his own. You've probably heard me tell this story before, but years ago when I was in in seminary, I was doing ministry in Charlotte, North Carolina. I would drive from Greenville, South Carolina, all the way up to Charlotte on a Sunday morning. It was about a two-hour drive. Where I went to was actually Concord, which was a little bit north of Charlotte. And one of those days, when I was driving, um, I almost died. And what happened was I was driving down the left lane in the freeway, and there was a truck that was going a little slower than the speed limit, and I was just passing this truck, and I got into his blind spot just as I was going by, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the truck just pulls over. I mean, there wasn't any time to stop or anything like that. Pulled over, and immediately I found myself in this 10-foot ditch between the freeways going 65 miles an hour. So I'm in this ditch, I'm looking over and there's this truck, right? All right, you think, okay, that's bad. That was bad, but there's something worse. Up ahead of me, the ditch was ending. And it was ending with a drain. And on top of that drain was a cement divider. All right, truck, ditch, me, drain. Not looking good. And in those split seconds, I mean, little decisions along the way. Uh, I'm just thinking, what am I going to do? I just quickly pop my steering wheel, and I pop the car up, and now I found myself between the truck on the right, again, going 65 miles an hour, the barrier, cement barrier on the left, and I'm driving on the shoulder, and there's just like a little bit of space between us. And then I just quickly pop my foot on the brake, slowed me down, nestled in behind the truck and started to cry. (laughs) Now, I could say, you know what? That was all because of my 
skillful driving technique. I mean, I went out and practiced. I got a trucker who would drive down the freeway, and he would just get in my way, and I would practice going into a ditch and popping out of a ditch and riding right there in the middle. No, yes, I could attribute to my skill, but it wasn't my skill. Certainly, certainly God allowed me as a human being to, to, to know how to drive a car, but he is the one who was at work in all of that. He preserved me. He protected me. And for me, that was, a, that was a life-defining moment to say, God, I'm in your hands because that was not me who was controlling that wheel. Now, the funny thing is when I got to the destination, I got to the church, no one has a clue what, went ha- what happened. Oh, hi, Rod, how you doing? And here I'm walking in like, you know. And yet, for me, That was life-defining. Now listen, God preserves his children. He is the one who who guides us and protects us. He does it with his leaders, but I don't think it's just his leaders. I think it's, it's all that call themselves his children, who are truly his children. So God, first of all, is a God who protects his leaders. Secondly, he honors his servants. Four of David's mighty men are honored in this record for putting their lives on the line and fighting these genetic mutants for the sake of their king. And notice that these these men are, are mentioned not just with a singular name, they're mentioned with their family name. This is, there's, there's something formal about this. There's something about, I not only don't want you to remember their name, but I want you to know where they're from and where they come from. So you have Abishai, the son of Zariah, who attacked Ishbabinab and killed him. Sibekai, the, the Hushathite, who struck down Saph. Elhanan, the son of Jeroregim, who struck down Goliath. Jonathan, the son of Shimei, who struck down Mr. 24 Fingers and Toes. The point here is this. The writer wants people to know who these men are are wants to honor them for putting their lives on the line these men are being presented in this passage as hero warriors of Israel their names are to be remembered and respected among the people of God from generation to generation parents would point to them as examples for their boys so that when they grew up they could be like them their character, their, their vigilance that they demonstrated for the sake of their king and country would be held up as a model to follow. If they lived today, there would be posters of these men put on the walls of boys' bedrooms, action figures in the McDonald's Happy Meals and characters in comic books and their statues would line our major cities and a trilogy of movies would have already been produced and they'd be known as the Mighty Men and the trilogy called the Giant Wars or something along those lines. Now, you know, this is an overstatement, but you get the point. The writer of 2 Samuel, coming to the end here, wants to honor these men. And friends, there's a place for honoring faithful brothers and sisters in the context of serving the king. 
And I think the church kind of vacillates between this. It's like, well, we should give any honor. At the same time, we need to elevate an honor and all we hear is this, this person's name. And, and I think there's, there's a place for us to recognize there is a rightfulness in honoring people for their faithfulness. Turn, if you would, please, to the book of um, Romans. I just want to highlight this with a couple, of cha- a couple of examples for you. Romans, in particular, um, We're going to begin at verse 4. And notice what Paul says about Prissa and Aquila. Chapter 16, beginning at verse 3. It says, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. We have an example here of honoring people for faithfulness to the Lord. What's the answer? Yes. Continue reading in the passage. Look at verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. She was probably in the kitchen, making the food, laboring away. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow, what? Prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, my beloved Stychus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. And it goes on and on. The point here is, is Paul is he's remembering friends. He's remembering people that interacted with him, but he's also honoring people who have, who have done something unusual, outstanding, or even, might want to say, commonplace for the benefit of the body of Christ and for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. And there's a rightness to that. Luke 22. Even Jesus surprisingly says this to the disciples. Luke 22, verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. That's a little snippet, but it helps you understand that Jesus, although many times he banged his head against the proverbial wall when it came to the disciples, he also commends them for standing with him through these trials. Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, the last one. And verse 21, Paul speaking again, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Now, all, all he's saying here is he's, he's honoring Tychicus because he has a job to do, but he's honoring him because of his faithfulness in the Lord. So now the question is, what is the, the right way to honor people? And for what reason do we honor people? Do we honor people because they've sold a lot of records? Do we honor someone because they've sold a lot of books? Well, it all depends on where the records came from and how they were used and what was the point behind it or the books. The the idea here is this, that we're honoring them for their ministry for Christ in the Lord. It's not about them, but it's about who? It's about Christ. And so we we honor, and there's a rightness, friends, to doing that. Um, At the Shepherds Conference, 
um, I've forgotten his name now, the, the, um, the uh, astronaut Williams, his last name, I've forgotten his first name. But he went to, he went and, and was on the, uh, the space station, and when he went up there, he took John MacArthur's last commentary on the book of Mark with him. And at the conference, he brought it, he had brought it back. What he took up there, he was reading it, he was studying it, and he was actually, I remember he was blogging and everything while he was up there. But he came and he had it, he had it mounted, kind of put on display, and, and, and gave it to John MacArthur, honoring him for what he had done with his, his, um, his commentaries. And it's like, there was a rightness to that. There was, there was an impact on this person's life. And we do that on a, on a grander scale, and I think even what we talked about this morning, we do it on a small scale, just on a personal scale. You write someone a card. Or in the context of a home group, you say, you know, I want to thank you for X, Y, Z. There's a rightness to honoring people in a right way. And here's, this is what's happening. So, so God is at work here, first of all, as we see here, protecting his leaders, but also honoring his servants. The third thing that we see about the God that David embraced is that he is a God who keeps his promises. All these events are taking place, not just simply because they happen, but because these are the results of what God said would happen through David. The giants lived both east and west of the Jordan prior to Israel's conquest of the promised land. And this record of their destruction bears testimony to God's faithfulness to keep his promises. 2 Samuel 3 and verse 18 says this, the Lord has promised David saying. So what do we conclude from what I just read there? The Lord is about to promise something, right? So make sure we see that. By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people from uh, people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. That's the promise. See, what Saul's regime could not do, I would say would not do, David's regime did. But not simply because it was David and his regime but because God had promised that he would do it through David. So this is one of those truths that we know so well, right? I mean, you, you ask your average Christian, you know, what do you love about God? Oh, he keeps his promises. Of course, we know that. We know God makes promises. We know that God keeps his promises. But the thing is, sometimes we can allow what we consider to be God's promises to kind of be soft in our thinking, and we can allow them to be the basis of, of wrong thinking. This is not a promise necessarily. God doesn't promise necessarily always for physical things. What he's promising us are spiritual realities. And promises often can turn into a prosperity gospel kind of message in our heart when we're, we're applying promises that don't really reflect God's word and what he says to us. When he says, I'm giving you all the riches that are in Christ Jesus, he's not talking about money, is he? He's talking about spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Those are all spiritual realities. So God's people will experience trials. They will suffer from disease. They will endure hardship, ridicule, and torture, and starvation. And God cares about his children who are going through those kinds of trials, but God is more concerned about their spiritual well-being. He never guarantees freedom from suffering this side of heaven. But he does promise a few things 
why we live in this sin-cursed world. Let me just throw out a few. Promise number one, that he will remain with us through all of our days. You have the promise of the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work with you through your days. That he will guide us and teach us. Now, that was initially given to the disciples, but I think that continues on through the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work with us and we have his word now that, that accompanies us as we breathe it in. Thirdly, that having his word central is essential to knowing, applying, and proclaiming him and his gospel. That's, that's a promise. That's a reality. But he's saying, listen, if you have the word of God central, you will know what to do. You will know how, what, to, what to apply. You'll know what to proclaim. He promises that the church matters and that it is essential for our growth in Christ. It's not just a suggestion. He commands it, but behind that command is a promise that this is what you need. It is a promise that sin unrepented of will only lead to destruction. There's a promise that he will bring us safely home. Now, what does safely mean? I went to pick my son up last night from Vacaville. Anyone out last night driving? Like eight to midnight, somewhere in that time frame? Yeah, I mean, I saw Noah. He was building another ark. I mean, it was, it was horrible driving on the freeway. And you know, you just never knew what you were going to hit as you were driving. And it's like, Lord, you're in control. The fact that God promises to bring us safely home doesn't mean that, that again, life is going to be without trials or heartache or suffering. It simply means there's a guarantee that you will get to heaven, which is your ultimate home. And that guarantee is by virtue of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And there are many more, both positive and negative. So this God that David embraces is a God who protects his leaders, honors his servants, keeps his promises, but also he is a God who silences his enemies. Our attention now is to the last giant encountered by one of David's mighty men, verse 20. And there was again war with Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was, a descended, or was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down the issue here is not the fact that he has six fingers and toes. That certainly would be an intimidating factor. It's like, wow, this is weird. Not only is he a giant, but he's a mutant giant if those two things are not mutually exclusive. I mean, he's, 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 he's enormous and he has extra things going on there. But that's not, that's not the point. The most important aspect of this description is what comes out of his mouth. He taunted, ideas deriding, he mocked Israel. It's the same word that is used to describe what Goliath did back when David found the, the armies of Israel and Philistia uh, you know, um, uh, standing, uh, facing each other, and, and Goliath in the middle just taunting Israel. Is there, any, is there any man that will come? Is there any man that will come and fight me? When Goliath taunted Israel, he lost his head. 
when this giant taunts Israel, he eats dirt. When you trash talk God and his people, you will be held accountable and eventually you will be silenced. Now it may not happen right now. Because when you taunt God's people, you're taunting God himself. And you don't want to mess with him. You've probably heard the expression that comes from the world of piracy, dead men tell no tales. The idea there is they would go and they would bury their treasure and then they would kill all the people that buried the treasure and you know, the head pirate would go off because he didn't, you know, there's no alive men to know where he buried the treasure. But here we are reminded that dead giants do tell tales. They testify to the reader, the world, and to us that God is greater, that Satan will eat dirt. Now friends, this is so important for us. He is a daunting enemy. And he uses all sorts of tools, all sorts of skills. But I want to drive us now to the greater David. And we need to consider how we, how we push through this to the Christ that took our place. And we're going to move through this pretty fast because we, we have the foundation now to kind of build on to see Christ kind of reflected through this story. His battle, first of all, was daunting. No sooner had Jesus been baptized, he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil, of course, is the enemy of God. He is a, he's that roaring lion wanting to devour. He's the destroyer. He's the deceiver. But Jesus faced, endured, and resisted the temptations the devil threw at him. His battle was varied. When he was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus had to face attacks on three fronts, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. During his ministry, Jesus faced rejection from the religious leadership, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and so on. They wanted to arrest him. They, they wanted to murder him. There was rejection from the political rulers like Herod and Pilate. There was rejection from the crowds the pig herders, you remember, they wanted, they wanted Jesus to leave. It's kind of a soft kind of, of, of way to kind of uh, just reject him. The crowds ultimately wanted to, to grab him and throw him off a cliff, if you remember. They also walked away from his teaching on the cost of being a true disciple. They said, nope, not going to do that. It's just too hard. Even there was rejection from the disciples. And Jesus said to them, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be... I'm going to be taken by the religious leadership there, and I'm going to be mocked, and I'm going to be crucified. And what does Peter do? He says, oh, no, 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 that can't happen, that can't happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, what? Satan. Thomas doubted. Peter and some of the disciples go back fishing when Jesus ultimately is crucified. His battle also was mocking, verbal, and physical abuse from family who thought he was out of his mind, from religious leaders that he possessed 
that he was possessed by a devil from politicians who said he's just a Galilean, which of course was an insult, from the soldiers putting the crown of thorns on his head and beating him and trying to dressing him up as a king, from the Jews who were at the cross wagging their heads in mockery, derision, even the inscription put on his cross, the king of the Jews, was supposed to be a form of ridicule. His battle was relentless. As you read through the Gospels, the religious leaders not only wanted to arrest him, they wanted to kill him, but those things happened repeatedly. Just, you see it over and over and over and over again. And the crowds ultimately, when they rejected Jesus, having said, Hosanna, Hosanna, end up saying, crucify him, crucify him. It was relentless. Now, we have to understand this. Jesus faced a real battle with a real enemy. But, just like we've seen, he is protected and he's preserved through the cross. And what I mean by that is through the place of the cross. In the case of Christ, there was resistance about his going to the cross, but he is protected and arrives to the place that he and the Old Testament scriptures foretold, that the Messiah would hang on a tree, that Jesus would be crucified. And then he's honored by eyewitnesses that said, truly, this was the Son of of God. That's like the, the punch note to the book of Mark. In a providential way, by the inscription over his head that says, the king of the Jews, all bearing testimony, all honoring him, even in the derision that it was intended for, was a means of honoring him. By the scriptures that testified to his coming and honored his sacrifice and death. By his position that we see him seating at the right hand of the Father in heaven. By his children who continue to worship him day after day. By the the celebration of the Lord's table, which we're going to participate in here in just a few moments. We celebrate, we remember, we honor him in his death. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. For unto us a a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's just one of many. And his enemies are silenced. Instead, they testify to who Christ really is. And one day they will stand before him and acknowledge that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This week, there was a speaker from the Dominican Republic and he was talking about Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And he, he mentioned kind of in passing that, that you know, many people talk about, well, there are many ways to get to God. And he was like, You know, I'm tempted to say no, but the answer is yes, you're right. There are many ways to get to God. But there's one way you get to God and you're safe. There's all sorts of other ways that you get to God and you're judged. Everyone will bow the knee 
and call him Lord. Now understand this, that Satan is a creation of God and he is in a state of rebellion against God and he seeks to destroy what God intends to do. He stands against Christ, but as, as daunting as he may be to us, he is like a flea on the shoulder of Christ to be flicked away on the last day. Satan is against God, he's against Christ, he's against us. He seeks to tempt us, to hinder us, to harass us, to outwit us. He's clever, he's manipulative, he's crafty, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He is like a roaring lion to intimidate us, but he is already defeated, and he knows it, but he doesn't want to believe it. Friends, in 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14, we have seen Jesus as our covenant keeper, and the evidence of that is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 22, we see Jesus, our valiant warrior. He stands against the giant of Satan and crushes him. Satan thinks that he has won when Jesus is crucified, but God has predetermined a plan that even Satan cannot thwart, and as such, he is defeated. And so when Jesus said, while hanging on the cross, it is finished, it was a crushing blow to the head of Satan. Now hear this. We need divine perspective. And as God's children, we're all called to bow down and to humble ourselves before the giant. We're called to worship him, we're called to trust him. You see, for the giant, the real giant in this story is none other than Christ our Savior. He is the giant. He is the one that flexes his muscles on the cross. And he is the one that accomplishes what no one else could. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. So let me remind you of the central point that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Because this, having gone through this, let's reflect a little bit on it. Divine comfort and hope for the believer in the face of the enemy. Yes, our enemy is daunting. Our enemy is varied and skillful in its methods. It certainly is ridiculing us. And our enemy is relentless in his desire to shut us down. But we stand safely and comfortable in the hands of our sovereign God who is working his plan according to his will. We know that any trial or sickness or other form of suffering is all part of God's purpose to bring about his glory. We stand resting on his promises that are rooted in his unchanging character and we're called to look on Jesus, to look to the cross to find our comfort and hope in him as our valiant warrior. See, all these themes all come to the cross. The atonement comes to the cross as an answer to covenant breaking, but Jesus fought the battle. 
And on the cross, he is victor. As you go on in time, he is still yet to cast Satan into the, the depths of the, of the lake of fire. But that is simply playing out the story because the victory is already won. If you're struggling with depression, those people that said, here's one of the giants in your life. <laughs> if you're struggling with depression, God is calling you to look at Jesus this morning. If you're struggling with anxiety, He's calling you to look to Jesus, who is your valiant warrior. If you're struggling with fear, God's calling you to look to Jesus, to see that he has accomplished everything on the cross for you. The question here is, do you believe what he says about you now that you're one of his children? You're having difficulty with relationships or finances or heartache and the list goes on. Those may be, in some world thinking, giants in your life, but the giant you need to be looking to is Jesus himself. So we bow down to him. We worship him. So God is calling us to look to the one who saves, the one who conquers, the one who is fighting for us, to listen to him, to obey him, and to live for him and his glory. Lord, help us. The enemy truly is real and he truly is daunting. But Lord, using really bad English, your son is even realer. We are daunted, we are intimidated because the enemy seems to come at us in different ways and with so much power and yet we need to see you not as a God that simply is somewhere on par with where the enemy is but you are a God that is far, far, far greater than the enemy that we encounter. You tell him what to do, you tell him where to go and you will be the one that ultimately will deliver him to his place of eternal suffering and agony and torment. You are our giant, our warrior, our great king. May we not forget what you have done in going to a cross and striking, as it were, that final blow on the head of each of these giants mentioned here as a picture of what you have done by striking and crushing the head of Satan himself. And by virtue of doing that, Lord, giving us life, giving us hope, giving us comfort in you. Oh, Lord. May we believe, may we trust in you, our mighty warrior. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.